I am Rachel Amiri, your host. <laughs> Let's bring in the rest of our group today. Uh, I'm joined by a regular little group of contributors here. We have Mike Lewis, editor. Hi. Melinda Ribneck. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Melinda's here with us again. And today we have David Lafferty joining us all the way from Canada. Hello. Hey, David. Hey. How's the weather in Canada? Raining. Raining. raining? Uh, yeah, but it, it's been good lately. It's been nice. Like I got an email from a friend in Boston, and it's supposed to snow there tomorrow. It was really nice and warm, and then just today it got cold. But oh, just today! Just today it got cold in Canada. <laughs> right, <laughs> David. Keep people inside. We're not doing well right now in Ontario when it comes to the uh, COVID stuff, and I think that's in part because in Canada, in springtime, the winter is so long and dark and everything, and then. Springtime comes, first warm weather, everyone just goes out and goes nuts and they're doing, walking around, talking, meeting each other all over the place. And, and yeah, so we've got a, a bit of a crisis going on. So we're supposed hmm. to all stay at home. But, yeah. It's tough after a year. Yeah. Well, today we're going to be talking about dissent, discernment, and how to think with the church. We're going to open up with a prayer first, though. So, uh. So this is just from Psalm 67. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. O God, be gracious and bless us, and let your face shed its light upon us. So will your ways be found upon earth, and all nations learn your saving help. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The Lord is risen. Alleluia. 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 Amen. I'm going to check that I don't have audio issues right now. I don't know if anyone else hears. Yeah, no. I, I, you sounded a little glitchy. Dissent, discernment, and then you couldn't find a D word to like summarize the rest of the stuff. What kind doom of bloggers. <laughs> Prophets of doom. Oh, doom. See, dissent. I like this. Dissent, discernment, and doom. There we go. Mike, you always come through for us. No, I don't. <laughs> okay, I have a complaint about last week's episode. Oh my gosh. I came in and I had the most fantastic story at the end. But then when I oh listened boy. to it, it was like I was quiet. No one told me my mic was too low. But I, I did, those of you who subscribe to us, wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, the audio version, I did crank myself up a little bit. So if you want to just <laughs> fast forward, not that the rest of the rest of the live stream wasn't exciting or whatever interesting fruitful whatever um, when i showed up honestly come on what the heck mike like when you showed up with your two hour long story of your confession with your brother that never i happened. didn't go to confession with my brother that was the whole Clearly, story that was the whole maybe story and we should. all missed it maybe you should mike <laughs> Didn't you promise our Patreon like subscribers, like, I don't know, like a two hour version of that story or something? If they donated $300 within the wow. next, I didn't actually give an amount of time because somebody cut me off. But That's perfect. Sure. If somebody donates $300 to where Peter is, his Patreon in the next before I midnight, I will talk at you for two hours about anything you want. Anything. And I will personally <laughs> judge you for your life choices and your stewardship of three hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, anyway. we held down this the show for you last week, and you just joined us at the last minute, which was very exciting. Yes. But you also can't expect us to be like quality checking your mic. And I didn't give mind. you a chance to say anything either. And we don't it's make fine, fun of fine. sick people. You're like, hey, I just got back from eye surgery. So we're not going to be like, Mike, your mic sucks. We're like, hey, you're not like you survived. <laughs> we were so Jill, happy. Jill and Michael have a question. Oh, boy. Is that the next? Oh, aren't they cute? That's my friend. Jill. Oh, Jill. the next. Actually, it's any I midnight. Any midnight. Any midnight. Send us $300 any midnight. You any will get midnight, a any day. podcast and, from and Michael Lewis. Melinda will join me for part of it. It'll be like a variety show. I'll bring in guests. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Maybe even some Jill. celebrities. Jill, save that $300 and we'll go out to dinner one night, okay? <laughs> on lockdown. There's nowhere to go. So we were going to catch up on a little bit of recent content on the site. We started a new series this week, Postcards from the Camino. 
which yes. is from a new contributor who actually lives in Europe. He lives, he lives on, in Spain. Spain um, he's an the Camino de San, right. de Santiago. <laughs> yes. Santiago. He's an Englishman who lives in Spain. And <laughs> if I lived in picturesque, like, no, Roman he has a whole blog. I'm going to, hang on, let me find Why it. Why do I'm I gonna, have a I would want to have animals too well but we're about to see mule videos like this always happens <laughs> bishop okay. comes on and mike shows us kangaroo videos now the raccoon thing it's gonna be mules every day now like his, his mike, website i see this i see the i'm just gonna put the searching. link to gareth's website in in okay. the comments Do i'm that. not gonna make yes. we're not i'm not gonna read you this blog post okay I'm but sorry. we have postcard number one up on our site it's a reflection from samos abbey which is one stop on the Camino, and it's his reflection on. Do you want to? Do you want to fill us in, Mike? Or it's his reflection on. Oh, so okay, um, so basically, people in Spain. What, what he proposed to me. So he, so Gareth, he's a convert to the Catholic Church, I believe, as a young adult, and he spent, I think, most of his life. Like he wrote a piece about vocation, and something, and I think his second piece was something like the vocation is in the journey. Because he's tried his hand at being a Carthusian monk. He's been a Franciscan. Now he's living the life of a hermit. Really fascinating guy. Really, And he has a really strong, just a really strong command of the language. Like really interesting writer. Like when you read his work, it's like a sense of place. And that and I that's always appealed to me, just the setting. But he proposed to me because he spent a lot of his life in Spain. He was a student, a few years as a student in Spain, went on pilgrimage in 1980 as a when he was a Franciscan. And and now he lives there. So he proposed to write this series called Postcards from the Camino. And the Camino, of course, is a one of the three main pilgrimage routes in Europe. It's historic. It starts in like Bilbao, Spain, or basically the top of Spain near France. And it, it goes along the, t the, the coast. It's an ancient pilgrim trail. And it, there are a lot of stops along the way. And then you finally reach the shrine of St. James, or Santiago, at the end of this pilgrim trail, which is where the bones of St. James by tradition have been laid. And one of the traditions is there are these little towns that you stop in and the, basically these shelters for the for people. And a lot of them are religious pilgrims. Some are going for exercise or for self-discovery or just going along with a group, but he spent a lot of time there. And so the first one that, the first installment that he wrote is about one town that he visited once as like a schoolboy, like young teenager with his class. And they had a, a blue school uniform that looked a lot like Franco's army. It was post Spanish civil war. And basically there was a beggar that spat at them. This is a town that was, that had sided with the communists mm -hmm. and they had been very mistreated by the monks in the Abbey in the town after the civil war, they were starving. And so he revisited it again as an adult, as a Franciscan, and he was staying at this Abbey and people were asking him, or the, the bartender was like, well, shouldn't you, isn't it past curfew at the monastery? And he's like, oh, I'm just traveling through. I'm not a monk. And had this conversation of the post-Spanish post Civil War era and why there was a lot of resentment against the church. And the bartender and some of the people in the bar were just telling him what happened. The people were going hungry. And in the monastery, the monks had food, but they refused to give it to the people because they had sided right. with the enemy. Well, I mean, the, that was the reason why he was spat on, though, was because of the way that they were treated. And he was dressed similar to the pro-Franco, pro-fascist Spaniards. And so I think one of the things, and it's one of the things that Pope Francis has had to reckon with or has tried to get us to reckon with, is a lot of the things that the church during the era of Christendom, when the church had a lot of power or when governments, there are all these nationalistic governments that had the, the backing of the church, the way that they treated ordinary people a lot of times was unjust. And so there's a lot of resentment against the church in the world that is, um, you know, it's justifiable. And I think we need, as Catholics, we need to be aware of just how hurt 
and it's not the church itself it's the human element of the church um, it's the people in the people yeah, of god yeah. who are the church so it's always it's, tricky you can't really separate the institution yeah. from the people like you can and say that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against this the body of christ but at the same right. time the people who act in the name of the church exactly are especially like going to corrupt the faith in the eyes of others like and yeah and i think it's this kind of intolerance that people have experienced at the hands of the church and the, and one of the things is as we've been going through this era during the 20th century probably going back to the french revolution when secularization and anti anti-clericalism anti-church sentiment really anti-religion sentiment really started to kick in the church's first reflex was to push back against that aggressively and i think a lot of those instincts are what Vatican II, for one thing, tried to correct. But obviously, as even today, there's still resistance to Vatican II, or there's still uh, a hesitancy to accept this, how is the church going to exist in the modern world in, you know, that, that Vatican II promoted and that we've seen through through John Paul II and through Pope Benedict. But I mean, Francis, it's it's totally unavoidable. But he he was formed as a Jesuit during the 60s. He was ordained a priest in 1969, but I think he was in for about 10 years before he was ordained, which encompassed all of Vatican II, which encompassed the liturgical changes, which encompassed this new theology and scriptural study that that ha has really defined the church since that time. Anyway, I, I think he is very interested in how to engage the world, but not from a place of temporal power. Well, yeah, sense. it's a response to secularization is not just happening like in a vacuum, like apart from what the church has done. And yeah. it's often a response to the exercise of temporal power by the church in various places. So like in France or even in Ireland, like Ireland is massively secularized in the past 50 years after just Irish Catholicism was just this kind of exemplar to the rest of the world, like being Irish and being Catholic were synonymous and now they are not. And a lot of that is because of the institutional failures in Ireland and people becoming aware of the laundries and the orphanages and the abuses of people and sexual abuse in the church. And a lot of the secularization that the church sees taking place, it's not just we need to react against that. It's we need to acknowledge our like mm -hmm. role and kind of not be defensive, but also say people are responding to things that we have done wrong, our sins. And the first step is acknowledging that. And I do see that shift, especially since Vatican II, like you said. And yeah, JP II famously apologized for a lot of the sins that the church that had been committed in the name of the church. And we just evolved in kind of that approach since then. The reaction to this sort of political alliance of the church with uh, particular political powers tends to be a very strong counter reaction. We had the same thing in Canada, in, in Quebec, which was deeply Catholic during, especially during the period of Duplessis when he was a uh, premier. And after that, there was the what's called the Quiet Revolution and incredible secularization and just a, almost a complete abandonment of that uh, Catholic heritage because it had. It just felt so stifling. There were so many difficult memories associated with it. It seemed to be completely at odds with the way the world was going. That's something that, yeah, the church kind of runs into it again and again. It goes all in on something, and then there's this huge blowback, which, and you get this secularization. The same thing happened in Spain as well after, after Franco over time. Well, around what year was that in Canada? Like, when did the big decline or the huge secular, secularization happen in Quebec? It would have been like in the 60s. I don't know the, the history of it all. That was something that I haven't you know, explored. Conrad Black actually wrote a book on it, on Duplessis, the Duplessis era, which I, I have, but I haven't read yet. But yeah, it, it reached its height, I think, during the 1950s and then completely fell apart uh, in, in the 60s. That's interesting. Like Because I know Ireland was an outlier. A lot of people obviously placed the blame on Vatican II, but in Quebec and, and a lot of places in, in Europe seem to, the, the timing seems to have coincided with 
leading the lead up and then the aftermath of Vatican II, like the United States that always talk about the summer of 69 and the sexual revolution, which just so happened coincided with the Novus Ordo and birth, the birth control pill happened when the, you know, Vatican II was going on. But one thing uh, I have friends who are Irish and maybe if there are any, anyone from Ireland is watching my understanding or what I've been told is their sexual revolution, their secularization really started in the early 1980s mm-hmm. like they did they didn't have that vatican II decline their mass attendance stayed high now their vo- their vocations crisis is is bigger than ours their mass attendance is lower than ours is in the u.s but it's funny because the it didn't always correlate with the council and i know germany for example their vocations crisis started well before vatican ii it just happened that 65 was like our peak year in the us so i think it's one of those things where people don't have this global don't always have a global perspective they see what's happening in the church around them and they think and, and so they're going to attribute what's going on in rome and they're going to tie it to what happened in the United States when that's not always the case or is rarely the case. Yeah, for um, a lot of a lot of people in Europe, World War One would have actually been the sort of earth shattering experience that blew away all the values that people had previously held, including, you know, religious values. Certainly that's when you look at the modernist authors, the modernist literature that I've studied, these are all people who were completely damaged, like very severely spiritually, mentally, even physically sometimes damaged by the First World War and trying to pick up the pieces afterwards. And that's, I You don't get that in the United States or in North America. It just didn't have that same earth-shattering experience, and it had to wait until after World War II and and then the 1960s before you get that sort of real secularization and questioning of a lot of traditions and, and that sort of thing. It's almost as if Vatican II isn't to blame for all of these various crises. And there are other factors that led to the loss of faith and secularization accelerating in different places in slightly different times, but for similar kind of thematic reasons, but not, we can't pinpoint, oh, it was 1968 and Vatican II. Yeah, Vatican II in a lot of ways, like they always say that a different every council is addressing a different heresy, right? It's the response to the heresy. People talk about the Council of Trent, which not only does it respond to the heresy, but the heresy is usually attached to, it's a response to a problem in the church, an abuse in the church. So the Protestant Reformation, a lot of it was tied to the poor formation of priests. A lot of it was tied to this collecting of the buying indulgences, corruption and simony in the church. And and the Council of Trent was a was a reforming council. There were aspects of Trent that that actually were taken from some of the a lot of the critiques that were made of the church by by people like Martin Luther. And in the same way, Vatican II was a response to modernism. Like modernism in a lot of ways there. So what they were arguing was that the church was was too closed to different possibilities, was too rigid, was too too formulaic, too systematic, out of touch with the modern world because i mean trent one of the things that trent did in reforming liturgy was to freeze it like liturgy develops for the first 1500 years of the church they had and i mean you get the good and the bad with that you get there were different rites developing and there were certain abuses but there there was an organic flow just like how they talk about how one of the critiques actually of the novus ordo was that of our current English or vernacular mass was that the change wasn't organic. But the problem was because of the Council of Trent and needing to like hone in or rein in all these abuses, they basically froze the liturgy for 400 years. There was no development organic or otherwise and changing, adding a saint to a prayer here, changing the calendar there, but no major changes and no major reforms in liturgy. So I think even though people critique the the post-Vatican II mass, a lot of it was just common sense reforms that had been talked about, but never implemented because there was no development in the liturgy for so long. 
That's interesting, Mike. You say that Vatican II was a response to modernism because some hardcore traditionalists think Vatican II was like the triumph of modernism. But I think you're, I think you're actually right. I think the crackdown on modernism that happened in the around 1910 or so that was a case where the church was saying no you're not going to revolutionize the way of thinking in the church from below. We're going to do it on our own terms. We're going to come to grips with modernity altogether through through an actual council. And that's what I think Vatican II represented. And it, it, it didn't use the sort of same methods of thinking that modernism tried to bring into the church. It, it was still grounded in tradition. It was still grounded in a very Catholic way of thinking. Whereas true modernism from the early 1900s was grounded in modern philosophy. It was grounded in like Hegel and Kant and, and, and those types. So this was a case where the church had to put the put the boot down <laughs> for a little bit, put things on hold until until the church could actually grapple with the, the questions of modernity on a much bigger scale and, and in a more organized way. So kind of speaking about how in even that Camino de Santiago piece that we ran, thinking about how the church's response or the perception of the church by ordinary people has framed a lot of the development we've seen in secularization or just different trends. Pope Francis today, there, there was a conference about his recent book with Austin Ivory, Let Us Dream, and he had pre-recorded address that was broadcast as part of this conference. And the conference was co-sponsored by the Catholic Campaign for Human Development and a bunch of other organizations like Loyola University. And, and it several different like universities and schools just around the world. And there was lots of different sessions, but his kind of kicked it off. And in that he did talk about a new version of politics, not populism itself, but what he called popularism or inclusive populism that really attends to the people on the peripheries, as he often likes to talk about, but to those ordinary people and understanding both their needs and their movements and their intentions, but also responding to them in a way that like, is trying to be understanding and inclusive. David, I believe you said you caught parts of this conference today. I don't know if you had any impressions you'd like to share. Yeah, I, I caught, I had a chance to watch some of it. And I, I thought the, the discussion was, you know, really fascinating. And it, it I got to admit, came to mind was we, at, at where Peter is, we've received some, you know, criticism for being maybe too political or moving into what some people call like kind of woke territory, that sort of thing, where you're talking about a lot about social justice and the structural inequalities and things like that. But that's exactly what they were talking about at this conference. One of the sessions that I had a chance to, to listen to was on structural inequalities in society as revealed by the pandemic. And these are things that Pope Francis was talking about in Let Us Dream. So it reinforced the idea that there's no way we can hold ourselves above politics, hold ourselves above the political what matters is the way we approach it. And I think we really have to listen to Pope Francis when he's providing this kind of guidance because, you know, what he's pointing to um, with this idea of listening to the people, I think, is this idea of not listening to the ideologues or the, the people who are, are pushing these kind of ideologies and trying to get everyone to follow them. Listen to the actual people. So listen to people in their concrete situations and, and look at that. Like, I think we saw this conflict when during the Amazon Synod, when the whole issue of what they called the the very very probati came up, and I think it seemed like Pope Francis was allowing this to be talked about because he saw that there was a real concrete human need in the um, Amazon region, and that maybe this idea of allowing certain married men to to exercise the function of a priest would be a solution to that. But then it became caught up in this big ideological campaign um, about married priests. And then you had the sort of the German side of things where they were trying to push the idea. And then you had the reactionary side of things where they were trying to stop it. And I think that frustrated Pope Francis because he really wanted to listen to the people and let that guide any kind of change that's going to happen. I think that's the key is that we always have to look to the people for change, look to the, especially to the margins, right? It's people at the margins who end up creating political change a lot of the time. So that's where we have to be centered. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. because I got in a little bit of trouble today on Twitter because <laughs> I tweeted out that Austin, I was watching a bit of the conference too, and I tweeted out that Austin Ivory had said, oh, every diocese should be involved with the populist movements of their diocese and that kind of thing. And he was like, no, Melinda, people's movement, people's movement. 
And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's what I meant to say. But it's interesting because that mistake was pretty formidable because part of the the conference, the Pope did start talking about the difference between, you know, populism where it can take a paternalistic vibe, where you end up having an elite group who is trying to voice, to uh, supposedly voice for the common man or the, or, or the people. But oftentimes it just becomes another ideology to that might appeal to the people, but really isn't the people. It's allegedly working for the people, but not with the people. And so he distinguished that in this conference. And then I totally misquoted it on Twitter. But it was a really interesting thing. And back to that like original quote that Austin was discussing from Let Us Dream and from the Pope's vision, this idea that dioceses should be working with these people's movements, right? Like, when we apply it to our current situation, I could not help but to think about like Black Lives Matter and this kind of like disconnect because Black Lives Matter is a people's movement. It's a people, it's a marginalized group of people who are trying to come together for a movement for a racial justice. And so that is what I just kept thinking of over and over when he's talking about like how dioceses and people um, and Catholics should be involved in these movements. And the disconnect is sometimes, oftentimes what you hear on online or in person too, is that, oh, I don't want to get involved. It's too political. But this idea that no, like we shouldn't be scared of the messiness of politics and that we should take an active role into working with the people who have these grievances, even in the political arena. Austin even talked about how sometimes people can come together and you may be a Catholic working next to a Muslim, but you're working in the same movements for these causes for the oppressed. And he talked about even the joy that comes from actually working hands on in these movements. And so this kind of call for us to take part to take part in in, in these people's movements is what I got a lot from the conference today. And I think that's something that Pope Francis was really trying to emphasize in his vision of fraternity for the church. You give the, or Austin gave the example of working side by side with a Muslim towards a common goal. And one of the things that Pope Francis, in his description of, if you do have a conflict with someone, the answer isn't to bury it or to hide it or uh, pretend it doesn't exist. Like, obviously, there are huge theological, social, cultural differences between the West and the Muslim world. And somebody from that background, from a Muslim background, isn't going to be the same as you. And, but that's, that shouldn't hinder you from, while yes, we acknowledge that we have these two different things. We can we can hold that intention while we we work together to feed the hungry or to make sure people have housing or health care. And another thing that talking about the margins, and I, I have a friend that I used to work with for the church and we've kept in touch. The talk about the periphery and the margins, a lot of times we use it in terms of go out to the periphery to help the people over there. And I think I was using that language in just having this conversation about Francis's vision with her a couple of years ago. And she stopped me mid-sentence. She's one of those people <laughs> that love her, but it's one of those things where it's, no, you didn't use the right word there. You're going to need to like roll that one back and say it again this way. And the thing that she really brought out was no, you're not going out to the margins. You are working with the margins. Mm -hmm. You are in solidarity with those on the margins. You're bringing yourself to be on the margin as opposed to to go to does, if that makes sense and and another and it also reminds me of and i think i i wrote a brief piece about this a long time ago and don't bother looking for it because i have no idea what else it was about but it was our viewers and listeners can do that if they want but during an audience pope francis spoke about letting the poor evangelize us mm -hmm. we go we serve the poor so that they are available to us to evangelize us. It's not us going out to show them a thing or two. Yeah, we're helping to provide for their physical needs, but the trade-off in the end, 
we get so much more out of the deal. And he emphasized that in his talk today. He said he emphasized the dangers of basically not doing that by showing what meeting the poor really gives to the church. He said, meeting the poor gives missionary vigor. If the church disowns the poor, she ceases to be the church of Jesus and falls back on the tendency to be an intellectual or moral elite. And he called that a new form of Pelagianism, which is a theme he's used before in different documents like Gaudete et Exultate, I believe. But he likes to talk about new Pelagianism. Just we are working for our own kind of ideas of what the church is and what God wants us to do, but we're not actually in contact with the people that Jesus calls us to serve. And I used that term in my blog post on Friday. You did. <laughs> <laughs> because you just can predict what Pope Francis is going to talk about, Mike Lewis. Oh, Lord. Don't <laughs> that no. I was trying to like, like You're you said we were going to talk about the blog post. Yeah. And I was trying to steer you. So Here we go. We're steering. Up. We're steering in that direction. What was that blog post about, Rachel? <laughs> your your post on Friday, the left and right dissent, Mike Lewis. Are you asking me to summarize your own yeah, your own yeah. post? What'd you get out of it? <laughs> what did oh, I get I out of it? it. I, mean... <laughs> I got nothing out of it. He's reverse hosting the podcast. It's terrible. So it's been a, a growing criticism that we aren't at WPI as hard on dissent when it comes from the left as we are on dissent from the right. So you were basically responding to that by, you know, talking about the mission of the website and how we care more about, or these are your people. I think you said something like, these are my people. This is my margin. These are my people. My minority, are, I think. My minority. Saying, there you go. It's such a small group of people. These. It is. We're the subset of a subset. Yeah. But you're pre we're preoccupied with, with dissent on the right because there's a few different reasons. It's our people. And the way that it's presented from the right, it's this is true Catholicism, this is orthodoxy, this is what it means to be faithful, is to approach the magisterium in this way, or to distance ourselves from Pope Francis, or to be suspicious of social justice efforts. And that is more that's an insidious kind of approach to an insidious form of dissent. That's a fair summary of your that is that is a fair summary. I Basically, the, all along the way, I tweet out a piece about Strickland rejecting the CDF's teaching on vaccines or on whatever Vigano has cooked up this week, calling Pope Francis the devil. And I, I get four or five different responses. It's always, when was the last time you wrote about the German Synod? Or what about Father James Martin? You never criticize him. Or what about how come we haven't seen your piece yet on this thing that the NCR, National Catholic Reporter, wrote their editorial against the CDF document that came out recently. And people are like, you were silent on that. David, it's funny because... Didn't you retweet it? Or you did David quote tweeted it and said, this. he disagreed with it. He said... It, this isn't a betrayal. This is who Pope Francis is. And I I replied and I said, I seconded it. But somebody's like, yeah, we haven't heard from, we haven't heard from where Peter is on this. And I put a screenshot of that tweet and that response. And then the person was like, you did it in a response. You didn't put it on your own timeline. <laughs> There's yeah. just no. It's never really it enough. several people. <laughs> and then they're like, why didn't you write a piece about this? And to me, it's like. The National Catholic Reporter disagreed with a teaching of the Catholic Church. Okay, and water is wet and dogs oh, bark. No, I'm not even. But the thing is, it's isn't no. that what? Now there, okay. I now to be fair to the National Catholic Reporter, there are a number of writers that are, first of all, that are very devoted to the Church. I, several of them that I know personally are actually very are very faithful to the magisterium. Michael Sean Winters, for example, for all the flack he gets, and yes, he is a very politically minded person, but when it comes to church teaching on contraception and marriage and abortion, like he's called out the Catholic left isn't strong enough on 
abortion, which is true. Sometimes they just act like it's not even an issue. And but because he promotes certain candidates or, or likes certain bishops, he's a dissident, according to them. But it's that's not I, the window has shifted. But so to me, though, it's OK. A, a bunch of liberal church volunteers in Germany disagree with church teaching on it's like to me, that's OK. There, That's first of all. EWTN, National Catholic Register, all of these other organizations have been attacking them for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, what I what our mission is, what we actually were founded to respond to were these accusations that, or were these claims that the Pope can be a heretic. Pope Francis is a heretic. We should ignore Pope Francis. Pope Francis's teachings aren't valid. Death penalty is great. Climate change is a hoax and we should ignore Laudato Si. Morris Letizia doesn't say what it clearly says or Morris Letizia isn't a valid document. Some of these things are not just dissent from the magisterium, but they're a denial of reality. There are- <clears throat> too to let like yourself be guided by the Holy Spirit working through the Pope to guide the church. And if you look at the things that Pope Francis is currently addressing, we have things like legalism, right? He's very clear about about trying to like chip away at some of the legalism he sees that is predominantly on the right. So I think for so long, people saw like the majest they saw they perceived the magisterium under some of these past popes as attacking as addressing issues that pertain to maybe the left, sexual politics, whatever. But now we have a Pope who's like, wait, hold up. There's a lot of people being legalistic. There's a lot of people being pharisaical. Pharisaical. What's the adjective form of pharisaical? But you got me. (laughs) So- like, these are the things that he's like, there's a huge problem, the unbridled capitalism, the lack of focus on social, Catholic social teaching, all of these things are the Pope's focus. So if you're going to move, not that he doesn't, not that he isn't concerned, I mean, we have Amor Satisia, which I'm working on, my chapter study guy, I'll get that soon. But we have that in which he does address a lot of like family and sexual issues or whatever. But for the most part, he's seeing this need, particularly of the Western church to to re, to renew its Catholic social teaching, to combat legalism, to combat these other problems. And so if you are and moving in with the spirit of what the Pope is doing and where he is trying to lead us, you also are going to start addressing these issues. And these are issues predominantly on the right. I think you can take both sidism to a fault to be like both sides are equally problematic or both sides have the exact same amount of problems. Like, why aren't you giving them the most attention? Well, because one is burning down right now. One is on the verge of schism right now. One is proclaiming things actually are church teaching, which are not, and doing so in well-funded campaigns. I don't know. That was my thought with the whole, like, the whole flack that we get for, for, dissenting or picking on the right versus the left. I don't know that I identify all the way as the right as my people. Some WPI is a mix, right? But I would say I identify with the mission of Pope Francis to combat some of the hypocrisy, the legalism, all of these things that are giving us a lot of problems in the church right now, particularly the Western church. Well, and one of the things is we talk English speaking conservative Catholics love Gilbert Chesterton, Gilbert K. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, the, the British writer. And I guess there was one of the, the I guess there was a, a a call from one of the newspapers where it was, the question was, what was, what is wrong with the world? And all these thinkers and journalists and writers and scientists wrote back these lengthy responses about what's wrong with the world. And of course, the humorist or the, the clever turn of the phrase guy, G.K. Chesterton wrote, his response was, I am. And the funny thing is, the people who seem to love G.K. Chesterton the most today don't do that level of introspection. He It wasn't just flippant. One of the things, it's like all this stuff is happening out in the world and we can't stop people from being, from turning against the us. church, from disagreeing <laughs> with us, from stopping to go to mass, from belief, from voting certain ways, for promoting certain issues, for engaging in certain types. Of, there's really very little we can do. And even if we did have that ability, it would be coercion, which is mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we're in this situation, because the church 
was previously in a situation to coerce. And but what can we change? It's that's one of the that whole uh, yeah. psychological thing. What can you change? You can change yourself. And so Pope Francis is saying, just like Chesterton did way back when, let's look at ourselves as a church. What have we done wrong? Where have we not lived up to the Christian ideal? Where have we not been welcoming? Where have we not expressed unconditional love? That's one of the things there's always, uh, one of the things that's always struck me is with LGBT people or with people who are living in some kind of like sexual sin or people who have done such and such in their, their lives, or let's say they're somebody whose kid has fallen away from the faith or who has left the church. And it, it's okay. These things are serious. People have free will. They make these decisions. And when we address it, we can't always do it with, but, and I brought this up and then Melinda laughs because I use that word after the show, but no, but, but it's like, we need to express that kindness and that welcome. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree and take, and invite me over, invite me over to your house for dinner. And we haven't had that kind of welcome. There are people, there's, there are people who hold contempt for one. And granted, I think we all fall into that, but. I think this is too the issue with the whole like why because I'm personally also harder on the right than the left but the idea is it's because the right is directly trying to I guess present themselves as the church so if you are going to present yourself as the church even over we know even yeah. over the pope or whoever but if you are going to present yourself as the church like you had better present yourself correctly if you want to be on the left and dissenting from some of the church's teachings on the left and you are who you say you are, that's cool. But don't be on the right and say, I am the church and then present yourself as racist, homophobic, as legalistic, as Pharisee. How about to say like Pharisees? Like Pharisees. <laughs> like that's my issue with it. And part of it comes from I personally have a heart for those who I see who are affected by some of the hate and the policies and, the, and that kind of thing. But also is I think at the root of it, as much as I care for those people who are affected by some of the bigotry and stuff I see on the right. I think as much as I love those people, I think for me where it really burns me and it really gets me like moved is thinking that you're presenting my church and my God in a way that is not who they are. And you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that because Joe Smo or Taylor Marshall or Tim Gordon on the internet told you he was more important than the Pope. You don't get to present who God is and who my church is falsely. And that's, and you don't get to say that your definition of Catholic is one over the church's authority. And so that's where I, that's why for me, it's a thing. It's a thing because one, I have a heart for those who are like, obviously on the margins and being oppressed by these people, but also like, how dare you? And this is a problem. This is more problematic on the right than the left. This idea that like they're half a step out of schism because they are, their authority is more valid than the Pope's. Yeah, and they don't acknowledge that. And that really was the theme of of my piece. It was at first I thought maybe they wanted to be obedient to the Pope back early in the papacy, but they didn't they were confused or they didn't understand him. And like one of the things early on when Amoris Letizia came out was people Cardinal Burke the next day said, It's not a document of the magisterium. And his reason was a total misreading of paragraph three which basically said not every issue has to be addressed by the magisterium. It didn't say this entire thing is not magisterial. And then the other thing is that footnote, the famous footnote, they yeah. said, it's not clear. It's it's not clear. That's better than what we have now, which is word <laughs> well, counts. Like well, function, so the, <laughs> word function searches. Well, no, but this is what serious theologians are holding. Like I got into an argument, into an exchange with a, a professor at the John Paul II Institute because he claimed that Amoris Letitia wasn't clear and it was just some thoughts of Pope Francis and yeah and, and paragraph three he didn't go quite as far as Burke but said that you know, some of these things might not be really what the church but the thing is when the Buenos Aires directives so basically the question it was are there any cases where somebody who is living in a state of objective sin, like they're divorced or remarried, married, but because of certain circumstances in their lives, it could be tragic, it could be desperation, where they aren't entirely culpable. We know that 
mortal sin is not just the act. It's not just the gravity of the act. It's having full knowledge, which isn't really the issue in the case of these, because obviously you can explain, oh, you're not supposed to be divorced and remarried. Okay. They understand that it's, but it's whether they have full consent of the will. Mm-hmm. And the rigid, the the Catholic, the people who opposed, and they, Rodrigo Guerra in our podcast, he was there at the 2014 Synod. And he was like, there was this whole campaign, this media campaign. It was like war. Yeah. During, and, but anyway, so they pretend there's all this confusion after the document mm-hmm. comes out. They're very hostile to it. And the dubia are submitted, which is, to me, it's like the ultimate act of disrespect to the Pope to like, basically four Cardinals accused the Pope that dared the Pope to say, I'm a heretic with these passive aggressive questions. And I still get worked up about it, but <laughs> you know, I, we can but let me, yeah, that, okay. I'm skipping the dubia. But then the Buenos Aires, okay. so, so then what happened was the bishops of Buenos Aires sent, they said they wrote out some guidelines Okay, under these circumstances, the ones I just described, on in individual cases, case by case, during pastoral accompaniment, when all other alternatives have been exhausted, the person might be able to be admitted back to the sacraments. And the Pope responded to it and wrote that, that this is correct. There are no other interpret- interpretations. And then he had it published in the Acta uh, Apollos... Uh, in the apostolic acts said, this is magisterial. Like this, these guidelines need to be published as authentic magisterium. Like he put a rubber stamp, a red rubber stamp on it said magisterial. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay. The debate's over because thank you for the clarity. These guidelines say step by (laughs) step. Was it actually like red and rubber? I imagine it that way, but I have not I seen really the original document. I really have a stock of those in the back. <laughs> um, but, but so it was clear. This is the official, sorry, it, this is the official church teaching. And they still fought back. They still refused it. They still said it. David, I don't know what your thoughts are. No, no, sorry. Like, I, was gonna, I was just going to say it was something that you brought up about how Pope Francis said that not everything has to be addressed by the magisterium. I, there's a, there is something we can learn from that, which is that but there's a lot of things that, that are in that Pope Francis says that are in his the documents that he uh, delivers and his you know, talks and all these things that are not necessarily like binding magisterial teaching, but he's trying to get us to think a certain way. He's trying to he's trying to get us to think along with him along in a certain sort of framework. And that's what I find is sometimes missing when you have people who do support Pope Francis, but they take a sort of view of him as sort of abstract dispenser of sort of magisterial teaching. And I saw this come up when the the, the CDF document came out on gay unions. And people were like, why aren't why aren't you going after all these people who are disappointed and angry about it. Why aren't they just, why can't they just accept church teaching and, and shut up and, and that sort of thing? The reason is that Pope Francis in his sort of non-magisterial you know, interviews and, and just the things that he's talked about over the years, he's led us to think a certain way about LGBTQ people and has created a sort of new approach that the church can take, I think, towards LGBTQ people. So that's why some People see him as an ally in that respect. And so there's this kind of understandable sense of disappointment if something comes out that seems harsh, seems judgmental when it comes to to LGBTQ people. And it seems to not correspond with that way of thinking that Pope Francis has been cultivating. Now, it's the same when it comes to larger issues of like social justice and things like that. I wonder, like uh, some of these people who are criticizing, say, us for, for getting involved in these sort of things or talking about them, have they been reading Pope Francis? Have they been reading that dream? Have they been reading Fratelli? Right. Like, where are they? If you're reading that kind of stuff, you're realizing yeah. it's going to open up our minds. Now, there's certain, I think he's not afraid to use, say, the CDF or, or, or his own you know, statements to tell us when, you know, this is too far or this is something that you shouldn't do. He's been very, he's been very clear when it comes to the church in Germany in that, that the letter that he wrote regarding the, uh, the synodal way where he, it was a mix of praise. I really, this is important. This is this journey that you're taking, but you got to make sure you're doing it the right way. And I'm worried that you're not doing it the right way. And I'm worried that you're going to take things too far. You're going to try to do things without truly discerning them. You're going to you're going to take try to change things on a sort of ideological level and not really focus on concrete situations and the, 
the voice of the people and that sort of thing. He really is calling us to to change and take new perspectives. So I don't think it frustrated me that when that CDF document came out, that some people saw it as an excuse to say, oh, everything that Pope Francis had been signaling towards when it came to LGBTQ people, that was all just nonsense. And this is the real deal now. We're not going to have any progress. It's just going to be nothing. I, I think what you have to do is you have to read these things in context and read them according to the way that Pope Francis is asking us to read them. There, you know, there's, oh, sorry. Can I? <laughs> just, Go for it, Mike. <laughs> okay. You, David, you remind me of this. There was a genre from about 2013 to 2016 or 2017 of, so there were these, there were people who would write a defense of Pope Francis. There were people who hated him right away, but, and, but he would say something or he'd teach something and they'd try to bend it into the, like the 2012 version of us conservative Catholicism, basically twist it so that, and then you would get after four, five, three, four, five years, you would get this manifesto. I've tried to defend Pope Francis yeah. for so many years, but after this one thing happened, I can do it no longer. Clearly, he's trying to destroy the church, and he's not orthodox, and he's the worst pope ever. I could run Matthew Schmitz, Phil Lawler, Robert Royal, Taylor Marshall. A lot of these guys tried to do that, and then they, and then like a, a switch flipped, and they became totally anti-Francis. Rusty Reno, Father Wine Andy. Father Wine Andy said he was not going to criticize the pope. Be besides that one open letter that he wrote that the Pope never responded to, that he decided to publicize worldwide. He said he wasn't going to say it. Now he, you can't shut the guy up. All he does is criticize the Pope. And because they turn and, and like Dan, your dear husband, Dan Amiri, he wrote a piece about Phil Lawler that Phil, so Phil Lawler, in 2015, when he was still trying to defend Francis, wrote these wonderful things about Laudato C and quoted these things. Then in 2020 or 2021, when he hates Pope Francis, he writes a piece trashing Pope Francis, and he's using the same quotes that he praised five years before. Yeah. It's like their minds become determined to destroy him, to undermine him. I don't I, like I don't. And that's and this is where I think where Peter is, is different. And I'm not boasting, but I this is all of you. This is our readers, the people who have supported us, all of our contributors is oh. that. Rather than trying to twist Francis into our version of Catholicism, we are receiving the teachings of Pope Francis. We are letting Pope Francis teach us. And sometimes, and I'm not saying that the CDF document is a whole other story, but there's sometimes when Pope Francis does something that really makes us wonder. This isn't, and it's funny because we're following him so closely. Just a big example is when the lady yanked his arm and he slapped her hand. <laughs> Obviously it was a natural reaction, <laughs> but it's like, isn't he supposed to be charitable? David wrote the piece about the residential schools in Canada. Like Pope Francis, if you're doing, if you want to do the Pope Francis thing, you really should reach out to these people in Canada who are suffering. And I'm not saying that's a, that we should go around bashing Pope Francis, but I think we've, he, he's an instrument. He's been picked, he's been anointed to be our shepherd. God has known that Pope Francis would be with us since the beginning of before time. We were made for this moment. Now, that's not to say that every Pope is perfect and every Pope, but it's like a movie again, like the oh most God, Yeah, I, I want to promo okay. here with lightning bolts and dramatic music. And yes, we need to find a Tim Gordon producer guy. You <laughs> were made for this moment trailer. Yes. But it is. But it is true that what kind of distinguishes WPI is trying to think with Pope Francis and trying to see the direction he is moving and to understand what he's actually trying to say and to understand that the church is, as he is the shepherd of the church, that it's not that he's necessarily like dragging the church along behind, but he's pointing out the direction that he sees the church moving in and that he is leading the church in. And so to know that we are, to know that we are thinking with the church does require some level of religious assent and docility yeah. to the Pope. And I want to say, we should not be controversial for Catholics, but... <laughs> 
we're called religious ascent is defined as like the ascent of the mind and the will and a focus of one of those without the other is where we often get in trouble so there's a lot of people who will say like ascent of the yes we should do what the church says to do but the church isn't just calling us to that they're calling us to ascent of the mind which means that it takes work to figure out the mindset to figure out the reasonings to figure out the just all of the components of what the church is teaching not just a set of laws and so i think sometimes that's what's missing is this religious ascent of the mind not just actions but of understanding like god has died on the cross because he doesn't want us to be slaves he doesn't want us to be robots he wants us to be free thinking free choosing people so we have to that's the that's true religious ascent is to ascent the mind to grapple until you come to an understanding of what the church is teaching and so as much as i personally I'm cool with being a Pope Francis stan and a Pope Francis fanboy. And I definitely want a trailer with some music after this. This is our moment. But it's not even just about how much I do or don't like, which I do like him, Pope Francis. It's about, for me, like personally, it's been about reading the primary documents throughout the last like 10 years. And the documents are prophetic. And they, and some of them, some of the things I've sat with for years before really understanding, but it's working through. And sometimes you live your life. And as you're living your life and the things are happening around you and you're encountering new things, certain teachings and stuff start to click and make sense. And anyway, without going into too much detail of all that, because we're also running out of time, that's for me, that's what's missing is this idea of as much as I want to be like a Pope Francis Stan is this idea of just like working through the primary documents, working through what he's actually writing to us and speaking to us in homilies and, and the encyclicals and all of that and trying to assent our minds and our hearts to understanding what he's saying. And that is what it is to be Catholic the willingness to do this. And I think a lot of people look to the church and they value it because they think that the church will dispense a sort of set of laws that allow you to, and if you follow them, yep. you just live exactly the same way and It'll be okay. forever and mm -hmm. nothing will change and that's good. But I think it's the opposite. If, you really, if you're really thinking yep. with the church, the church will force you to change in ways that you may be uncomfortable with. Many people were uncomfortable with the changes, you know, at Vatican II and are still grappling with it. Me, it happened, say with Laudato Si, like when that was coming out, I was actually really concerned about it. I was, because I, at the time, I was a bit of a climate change, mild climate change skeptic, like this is all just overblown stuff. And, and so I thought, oh, am I really gonna have to get on board? Because <laughs> <laughs> the Pope said so, but then now, it took a little time. It took me reading it and sitting with it and thinking it through. But now it's one of my, you know, favorite church documents ever. And it's really changed me in so many ways. So we have to be able to be brave enough to let the church change us. And it can be kind of terrifying, but it's actually the, one of the most exciting things I think about being Catholic is that we're all on this journey together changing. And sometimes we'll be disappointed too. Sometimes things aren't going to change the way we want them to, but we got to go with that as well. And we got to the church is going to shape us into some kind of new, into a new way of living. And, and I think that's actually a great thing. And I want to add this before we go. I know we're running out of time, but to that note, David, the whole fear of change, as I was doing that Taylor Marshall infamous article that never got posted that Mike keeps starting to put up for Patreons. Oh, it's happening. Oh no, I just, please don't. I just need to find it. No. Okay, so I was going through his videos and I will say people are complex, right? So obviously I have very strong disagreements with this man. But the common thread that I was there was one video, it's a little cheeky, but he was like and it's a little dramatic, but he was like saying, addressing Pope Francis directly. And he was saying like, Pope Francis, please, we don't want this to be the case. We don't want, and basically what he was saying, the common thread through all of these videos was like, Pope Francis, I don't want change. I don't want you to change. I want you, I want to be able to rely on, he was saying, I want to be able to hold on to this. I want to be able to hold on to the church. I want to be able, and essentially also reading through some of his conversion story, you really get the sense that a big missing piece is this, this need to feel like he could have it under control if he just followed certain rules that never changed in the church. And I don't know if I'm articulating this completely well, but I think this is a real thing among some of these who feel very threatened right now with changes in the church and with this call to a sense more of the mind and to change in more complex ways than just being like, if I follow these rules, I will be okay. 
if I fall, if, if I can understand the church in these very pretty much simplistic terms, then I can control part of this and I can control my faith. And to some extent, I can control God and I can be okay. And I think that's the heart of a lot of this that we're it's seeing. An it's an understandable sort of human mm-hmm. uh, response to, to a really, you know, rapidly changing world. And especially the last four or five years or so has been mm-hmm. very, it seems that things are very chaotic and like Francis has said, the sort of World War piecemeal World War Three going on around the world, and a lot of things happening. So people want something to grab onto, and but we learn, I think, as we you know grow, that trying to keep things the same and trying to have total control mm-hmm. is is a, it's often a recipe for disaster. Um, and he's you know, very bad in the spiritual yeah. life. Although I did feel sorry for him because I, like you said, yeah. David, I can relate to that. I saw so that I one too. Sorry. And I felt that too. Yeah. I was like, I actually, I feel for him. And I think that's the challenge. And that's what Pope Francis like really invites everyone to really lean into is the complexity and being okay with discernment and not expecting to have this like set of instructions for the Catholic Mm -hmm. life and how it's going to look, but learning how to discern what God is asking us to do in different times and places, both individually in our own lives and then in the church as a whole. And so I think what we're getting to is like the dissent and the failures of thinking with the church that we see happening with our people (laughs) or the people who used to be our people are so often like both an intellectual failure and something else. There's some other ingredient there, like a refusal to really go there, to be open, to open their heart Mm -hmm. to following where Pope Francis is leading them or just a level of humility or something. There's some other ingredient there that isn't strictly like the intellectual level, but... Mm -hmm. So I think we we could probably talk about this forever. We could. I don't know. Maybe... I, you know, I'm, I have an idea. Going. You're going to be on. You're going to be on vacation, Rachel. I am taking a break next week. Yes, I am. I'm thinking maybe maybe awesome. I might do a if it, 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 maybe I'll do a, a bonus on maybe Sunday night or something if I'm free. I don't oh. know. A, a maybe bonus like we've got Mike this Lewis like streamyard thing. I don't no know. No three hundred dollar fee for that. No one needs. To well, if you pay three hundred dollars, then I'll give you like the HD <laughs> laserdisc version of it. <laughs> I with, no, with, I the, with the director's commentary, it'll be my voice over everyone else's voices um, <laughs> while they're talking, except Rude. for me because I. Okay, maybe I'll. Like, I want to do your voiceover. Let me do your voiceover. Oh, Let I know. We could do it the thing where, so we could take like an old one and then like we could each do like different people's voices and be like, and like, hi, I'm David. I, I'm going to talk about conspiracy <laughs> theories in Canada. And like when his mouth is moving and then you could do your impression of me. And No, I don't know. No, I do Melinda. Melinda does me. Well, you'll be out of town. So somebody, we'll, oh. we'll bring in a, we'll bring in a comedy Star to replace you. Maybe Jamie Gaffigan will come oh, on. Oh, okay. Jamie's <laughs> not watching right now. I don't know. I she might jump last in night. just with the margarita or something. Jeannie <laughs> is our biggest. Jeannie <laughs> is my is my biggest fan that anybody's <laughs> ever heard of. Okay, Mike. Anyway, but what? Oh, so about, you're what saying you? this topic will continue? This, this is topic might continue. Might con- I'm not making any commitment because I'm really no flaky. promises. <laughs> Okay. But I don't know. Maybe yeah, once you're on vacation, the whole site is going to be like very flaky. There, are there no might only be two posts, and they might be like in rapid succession at two a.m. <laughs> on Wednesday next week. But how long are you gone? Nine days. I'll oh have my, my computer if you really need me. No, 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 no. Go on vacation. No. Let that girl have time with her family. Okay. No. I'll just if if there's nothing on there, I'll just pop on the streamyard and I'll just talk to the screen. Whoever's but if you're there, talking, you do that. Yeah. If you're going to talk about the dubia, I'm not coming for an hour. <laughs> okay. What if I talk about the Doobie Brothers? Which which Doobie? Who's the Doobie? I don't even. I will enjoy watching whatever you guys put together, just like Mike enjoyed watching us last week, and then I will return with criticisms. Okay. Do our viewers ever tell us what they want us to talk about? Because I they should. We have put out this request multiple times. They say stuff that sometimes it's not very good with it. No. Yeah, yeah, we don't like our audience at all. So if they leave a comment on any of. Questions, or send us an email. Questions would be great. Yeah, questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question like life advice, I could dispense. Oh my god! 
like I'm dating. I'm going to look things. Lewis can just show up and answer. Do you need dating or love advice? How's your marriage going? Are you getting yeah. along with your parents okay? Bye. And I could just like, or if you have, no, or if you're like flunking like theology 101 and you need I can ideas, help with for that. ideas for a paper to write, I could come up with all kinds of things. I that can you help could. with that too. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to wrap up this episode. Listening. We need Tim Gordon's production guy. We and the Veritas Splinter. I think those are separate, actually. But we will get a stunning new intro with lightning and just... <laughs> Can we get creepy masks? In the future. No, we won't. But thank you for watching. Whoever sees you next week, they will be discussing something that I won't be around to moderate. But everyone have a great weekend. And thanks for watching. Bye. Bye.